Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. Hello to all our listeners. I hope you're all well and ready for a very exciting guest coming up in a wee moment. He is Craig Shirley, who is out this month with a riveting new book, April 1945, The Hinger History. And of course, as you might have guessed, April 1945 tells of the final month of the Second World War. Craig is a presidential historian with a keen eye on history, who has already written bestsellers on Ronald Reagan, among many other books, including Citizen Youth, The Making of a Reagan Conservative, which is the only authorised biography of former House Speaker Newt Gingrich's early career. Craig Shirley has a wide and varied career himself in both the literary world and in politics and is an eyewitness himself to some of the major events of our times. He was a communications advisor to the Republican National Committee, was director of the National Conservative Political Action Committee. He worked for Ronald Reagan and is on the Board of Governors of the Reagan Ranch. We like to cover both sides of the aisle on this show, Dig Life Deep. It's the only way to get this done right. And this side with Craig Shirley on this episode is totally absorbing and fascinating. You won't want to miss this interview. Craig Shirley is a big believer in the idea of subsidiarity or federalism, and he popularized the modern version of it known as localism, a phrase he coined. Craig has packed a lot into his absorbing, stimulating, engrossing 600-page-plus April 1945. Can you imagine? 600 plus pages and is well disposed to comment on America's state of play today compared with the period in America unleashed by war and mayhem. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. Was America a United States of America back then? Were people all in this together? We're all in this together. This is important for people to understand. We've always been divided as a country. You know, the Civil War was about our very divisions. That Historians will tell you that 30% of Americans opposed uh, the American Revolution and George Washington. And in fact, 100,000 left after America won the revolution. Uh, is that we were divided over, every election we're divided, of course. Uh, it, we were divided over drinking we're divided over uh, the Vietnam War. We're divided. The only two times we've been united as a country were beginning in the afternoon of December 7th, 1941. And we stayed united for four years. And the afternoon of September 11th, 2001, and we stayed united for only a couple months. That was Craig Shirley, author of the new fantastic tome, April 1945, The Hinge of History. And he is my guest coming up in a moment. Now, before we get to that, thanks to all who went over and listened to a new podcast, which has a unique and refreshing approach to all things money and markets I am hosting. It's called Odeon Capital Conversations with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein. Sure, sure. Timing is perfect. I get that with all the talk of interest rate rises, 
curious questions about the US and global economy, uncertainty, confusion, even a certain amount of psychic terror about the direction of everything. Well, Odeon Capital Conversations is a great podcast to catch up on the macro and not-so-macro pictures, and it is up there on Apple and the other platforms. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people. Hey world, I have a quick message. It's about safe driving. All right, let's go. Anytime you're driving, have the seatbelt buckle tight, both hands on the wheel and your phone out of sight. We're not in your hand trying to text somebody back because if you do, your car might get smacked. The moral of the story, just put your phone down. The people on the road will stay safe and sound. Put your phone down, put your phone down. People on the road will stay safe and sound. Yeah. <laughs> My guest is the presidential historian Craig Shirley, author of April 1945, the Hinge of History. Craig's backstory is also fascinating. Now, if you like history, and even if you are not a history buff, but are curious of heart, April 1945 is a page-turner, and wow, at over 600 pages, yeah, it's a great read. I say go out and get a copy. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Craig Shirley, Welcome to my show. I am delighted Thank to have you. you. And before we talk about your new book, April 1945, my gosh, 600 pages or so. Yes. Wow, that's, that's quite an accomplishment. And it's not your Thank only you. tome. I want to get a little bit about your backstory. That's incredible. And would you tell our listeners about what you've been doing through your life and the people you've met and your career and distinctions? Well, to keep it short and sweet, my first the first half of my life was was I was deeply involved in political campaigns, presidential campaigns, Senate campaigns, gubernatorial campaigns, and then the second half of my life was devoted to uh, is devoted to writing books about uh, those campaigns, and then I branched out into uh, uh, other uh, histories like the history of Newt Gingrich. Uh, I wrote a definitive biography of him. Uh, I've written two books on World War II. Uh, last year, two years ago, I wrote uh, the uh, biography of Mary Ball Washington, George Washington's mother, which uh, I'm very proud of and which won an award from uh, the Virginia Literary Association, uh, was uh, was the People's Choice Award. So uh, this is now, I'm on to my 12th book and I'm writing three more. Uh, as I tell people is that, you know, part of the reason I write books is to, you know, keep me off the streets and out of the pool halls. <laughs> uh, so, but I, but I, I, but I enjoy learning about things. I very much enjoy learning about things and I enjoy about writing about things. So I, I, Socrates said the beginning of wisdom is the realization you can't learn everything. And I guess that, I don't know if that makes me a wise man or not, but uh, I, I know I'm not going to learn everything, but I'd sure like to try to learn a lot uh, before I shuffle off this mortal coil. <laughs> well, we have a bit of catching up, some of us. Uh, we're not all historians, although we love yes. history. You grew up yes. in New York, and yes. now you've made your way to Virginia. Yes. It's been an interesting journey. And your parents were active politically. Yes, they were. 
very active. They got me involved in politics. They were uh, they were uh, or they were part of the organization creating the New York State Conservative Party. Back in the uh, '60s, was a potent political party in New York. It's not nearly as strong as it used to be, but it really held uh, held the, the uh, cards on you know whether or not a Republican or Democrat would win uh, in the fall elections. Well, that's changed, right? So, is that possible anymore in in a state like New York? No, no, it's it's a th- it's a thing of the past. Uh, New York State Republicans and conservatives have mostly fled the state, and uh, with Biden bringing in a lot of illegals into New York State, uh, it's it's completely left wing now. There's no there's there's very little Republican presence there anymore. It's all you know, and you see the Republicans run amok. Cuomo thought he could sexually harass any woman he wanted to and still be the governor of New York. He found out later that uh, that wasn't the case, but it still emboldens a lot of Democrats to do things that otherwise they didn't do, they otherwise they wouldn't do because the Republicans are so weak in uh, New York. This show likes to look on both sides of the aisle. And it's interesting and surprising maybe to hear you say that New York State's a lost cause to the Republican Party. Did we not see some kind of a shift in the last election? I mean, we certainly saw it in New Jersey and in Virginia, and there was no. uh, the incumbents took a Virginia was beating. Virginia was possibly. Yeah, yeah, good question. That's a good question, John. Uh, Virginia was possible because there, there, there was still a, a big conservative presence. First of all, we ran very bad candidates. Uh, the Republicans and conservatives did. And second of all, it was a reaction to Joe Biden to, you know, uh, defunding, the, you know, defunding the police and uh, and the corruption coming out of the White House and inflation and Afghanistan and all those other things. People just had a massive, you know, it was like the whole electorate of Virginia just threw up. Uh, you know, they couldn't take Biden anymore. They couldn't take the Democratic Party anymore. Uh, and they almost did it in New Jersey. They almost did it in New Jersey. But I think New York State is beyond, like California, uh, is beyond the ken of the Republican Party. They'd be best sticking to states like Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania, other states where they have a competitive chance, Oklahoma, Kansas, all those states, they have a competitive chance, but they don't have you a don't. competitive chance in uh, New York or uh, California. But the numbers in your view don't stack up. I I wonder uh, when you mentioned bringing in um, undocumented or whatever way you want to characterize immigrants, um, a lot of immigrants from countries like Latin America by nature are conservative, family-oriented people. Culturally, so yes, the assumption, they are, they are, the assumption they are that cultural. they're going to vote, the assumption they're going to vote Democrat is yes. maybe a mis- misplaced to some degree. I agree. I agree entirely. I agree entirely. My wife is uh, partially Hispanic, uh, is that her father was a legal immigrant from Pakistan. He left Pakistan because he, he didn't want to suffer religious persecution. He wasn't uh, Hindu. He was uh, Parsi Zoroastrian. Mm. So he came to the United States for the opportunity that he couldn't get in Pakistan. And my wife is, uh, you know, shares that political view. And I, I, I appreciate the Hispanic culture. I've been close to the Hispanic culture now for 40 years. Uh, my brother-in-law lives in uh, Tucson. Uh, and so I'm down there often. And, of course, I, my wife has uh, introduced it to me and, and taught me about it. And I have great respect for it. And I culturally, they are conservative. Culturally, Hispanics are conservative. 
And, and uh, interestingly enough, the Hispanics that are here legally are Republican and conservative. Uh, you know, Reagan once said, Hispanics are conservative, they just don't know it. Uh, and, and so I'm all for legal immigration. I'm all for letting in as many people from this, from Mexico, uh, Honduras, or wherever else, whatever countries out the border, letting them into the country uh, legally. I'm just concerned about the influx of illegal uh, aliens and the, the effect they'll have on the society and culture and economics, and also what they'll have on the, on the uh, social system. And of course, Joe Biden's manipulating of them by sending them around under the cover of darkness. He must be ashamed of it. He's not sending them during the broad daylight. He's sending them under the cover of darkness. So what is wrong with that? Something terribly wrong with that. Yeah, it's a very sad, distressing situation. Back again to New York, and you look at all the crime, the soaring crime. I I think I have a hunch and a feeling that New Yorkers are going to see through all of this and not going to take it anymore. They want leaders who will tackle law and order, bring back business. You're right. More conservative-oriented. Right. So I don't know. I think we could be on the verge of that soon again. John, I, I hope you're right. It's just a question of numbers. So many, so many people uh, right of center. Uh, you know, people, nuclear families, decent, you know, honest. Uh, upworthy uh, individuals have fled New York to move to other states. Uh, there may not be enough people left in New York to make an effective change. You know, I saw polling this morning that shows the uh, the Democratic governor uh, beating handily uh, both Republican uh, challengers uh, right now, and and, and uh, you know just the Republican the Democratic agenda is very much still in favor in New York. Even, you know, the, uh, you know, uh, the, the whole woke agenda is all very popular in, in New York State. They haven't, uh, I would say they haven't come to their senses yet, but who knows? Well, they have a hostile media as well at their back. Yes, they do. Yes. You met Ronald Reagan. Tell us about I that. I Ronald Reagan. I, I met Reagan many, many times. Uh, and I worked for Reagan uh, on a number of different occasions. I worked on the 80 campaign. I worked on the 84 campaign. I worked at the Republican National Committee, which was the political arm of the White House, the Reagan White House. And I worked for the uh, White House Conference on Small Business. I also have done work over the years for the Reagan Library. So uh, I've worked for Reagan uh, in different uh, iterations, wearing different hats through the 80s, 90s, right up till the present. What did you make of him? He was exactly the same in, in public as he was in private. Uh, he was an astonishingly kind and gentle man. He was an, uh, an upright, you know, philosophical. He was rigid in his in certain politics. In certain politics, he was flexible on on issues like uh, pro life and taxes and individual freedom. Oh, in many ways, I could go on all day, John. No, uh, no, but, he's you know, he, I'm have, fascinated by him. I've written all these books and done all these lectures on Reagan. He was in many ways a libertarian. He was a small L libertarian. He yeah. was very, very uh, fascinated and uh, taken with the idea of, of personal rights and personal dignity and personal privacy, which is why he despised the Soviet system, because it squashed the individual uh, for the collective. And he, he, despi- he despised collectivism. Uh, and that, that was very much that was 
was very appealing to me because I despise collectivism too. I'm very much a libertarian. I, I believe people should be left alone within reason. Uh, so, so his cause starting, I mean, I started following Reagan's career back in the 60s uh, when he gave his speech for Barry Goldwater and then was elected governor of California. I was following his career, his career then and then went to work. I didn't go to work on the 76 campaign, although my wife did. Uh, she was in Kansas City at the Republican convention, and then she went to work on the on the on the fall campaign. Uh, but I did uh, I did watch it, and, and uh, it motiv- motivated me to get involved. And by 1980, I was working on the 80 campaign. He was a former labor leader in the yes. in Hollywood, and then he kind of got out of that. Yes. Um, well, no, he didn't. Even he still kept an active union card, even when he was president. He still oh. paid his every year. To the Screen Actors Guild, and of course, he was a six-time president of the Screen right. Actors. He wasn't in that sense anti-labor. He was pro-labor. Yeah, he, he was, was pro-labor. He was pro the working man. Yeah, correct. He, had, he was pro the working person. Oh, very much so. And pro-family. He got so many of their votes in the eighty and eighty-four elections. He was very much pro-labor. Yeah, and pro-family. Um, a lot of pundits on the extreme left and on the left used to ridicule his intelligence and would say, "I recall." Well, that guy has no brains. But I, I took a peek at some of the things he wrote over the years, just, just in very flowery and intelligent and in philosophical language. So I want to ask you, was he bright, intelligent? Let he me, sparkled that way? That's a, that's a, I love this question because I get to hit it out of the park. <laughs> the baseball euphemism. <laughs> um, John is an old friend of mine who since passed away, Marty Anderson, worked for Reagan. He worked for Reagan and was with Reagan for many, many years. And Marty had gone to Dartmouth undergraduate, got his doctorate from MIT, so he would know. I I once asked him about Reagan's intelligence, and he told me he estimated Reagan's IQ at at 170. Whoa. Yes. Yes. Wow. Look at his writings. Name another president who wrote like him. He read five newspapers a day. Uh, he read uh, two, you know, up to two books a week. Uh, he, he, you know, and, and, and you know, the sign of intelligence too is an ability to listen, which I need to learn. Uh, but he, but he was meeting with scholars uh, all the time, Milton Friedman and uh, so many others, uh, and listening to them, listening to their economic theories, listening to their theories on humanity, listening to their theories on on life, listening to their their, their theories on civilization. This was an extraordinarily bright, bright individual. Peggy Noonan was one of his speechwriters. Yeah, but she was only there for a short time. She was only but she's there played for- up on that. I like Peggy's columns. I don't agree with them all. Uh, she's a good writer. Yeah, but there were a lot of... Reagan had the best group of speechwriters in the history of the White House. He had... Uh, uh, he had, uh, oh gosh, let me... Uh, uh, Stu Spencer and uh, 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 Peter Hannaford and uh, Peter Robinson, and he had so many, I did, Mari Mossing, he had so many good speechwriters. Uh, Peggy was there a short time only, and she, she was known for writing the grief speeches. She wrote the short speech about the challenger, and she wrote about uh, the, uh, the D-Day speech. But that, those are, you know, he had lots of good speeches. He had the great speeches before the Irish, uh, the Irish legislature before the uh, British Parliament, uh, before Moscow State University, 
the, the evil empire speech before um, Florida uh, evangelicals. I, I went to a lot of his speeches uh, and, and he, I, you know, it was actually news, John, when Reagan gave a good speech, gave a bad speech. He almost always gave a very good speech. Wow. He had great delivery. Um, yes. You know, he's, you know, he was an actor, which is not to say he sure. was acting on stage, but he, he could command yeah, he presence. He was, car- he was powerful and intuitive. Yeah. He connected with his audience and he was, and he, a- he took, he took lessons when he was a radio show, radio host on his voice and modulation, but yeah. those things shouldn't be held against him for yeah. trying to improve himself. I think those are marked in his favor. Absolutely. He was a glamorous figure also. Sure. What's wrong with having a glamorous president? Mm. I like the idea. No, it's great. Some burnout case like uh, like Joe Biden. Well, Joe Biden's in a whole separate episode. Try to figure that <laughs> one out. If, if Ronald Reagan came back today and saw the state of America and the world, what would his reaction be? And could he take center stage today as a politician? Could he get elected today? Yes, he could. Because he, would, he had the power, the ability to turn people to his point of view. All he needed was a microphone and an audience and about you know 45 minutes, and he could turn the audience to his point of view. He, he did that often. Uh, he would look at politics today, John. I don't know. I don't. I don't think he would be as disgusted as a lot of people think he would be. He would say, you know, there there are good times to politics, there are bad times. There's 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 a, a yin and a yang, uh, but but it's been like that since 1787. Uh, we've had low periods with uh, presidents like Buchanan, James Buchanan, and uh, uh, Millard Fillmore, and then we've had high periods with presidents like Franklin Roosevelt or George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. Uh, so he would say, you know, he would take the long view. It says, America has come back before, we'll come back again. I'm just wondering, would the media accommodate him? No, the media would not accommodate him. NBC and the Washington Post, they never did. When he, when he was in office, he was constantly bashed by the Washington Post. You know, I once did a review of their editorials while he was in office. And in all the time he was in office, they, they, there were some, I don't know, eight, 900 editorials. Very, very few took his side, even in confrontations with the murderous, corrupt Soviet Union. When he was going head to head with, uh, you know, Chernyanko or uh, Brezhnev or whatever, or Gorbachev, uh, is they, they always took the Soviet side. They always took the Soviet side. They never took the side. And of course, they didn't endorse him in 80 or 84. Uh, and NBC always produced bad reports about him, bad film reports about him. But he was able to learn to, to, to deal with it. He was able to let the, let the, let the uh, criticism slide off his back. So they would be corrupt and, uh, and attacking all today. So what is that? As long, and, and now, actually, to his advantage, he would have a, a conservative media, Fox, Newsmax, Washington Times, Washington, The Examiner, OAN, other to rock talk radio, which he of course invented, he literally invented it. But he would have that on his side, which he didn't have on his side when he was president. You know, he he uh, he invented talk radio, of which there are hundreds now of talk radio hosts around the country. He invented talk radio by refusing to uh, sign the so-called fairness doc, which mandated that any AM radio station, if they even said a peep about one political viewpoint had to give equal time to another political viewpoint. 
Well, Reagan, that offended Reagan's sense of freedom, and he refused to renew it. And all of a sudden, conservative talk shows began flourishing Mm. around the country uh, and have been ever since. I mean, I see the the huge merits in that, and um, conservative media would accommodate him. But then you're sort of preaching to the choir. You need to break into the CNN um, universe and all of those others. CNN doesn't have a universe. It has a microscope. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Jeff Zucker resigned today. And you know what? Nobody noticed. You know, yeah, he's he's so inconsequential. Nobody cares. Yeah, I sometimes think they they have ratings issues anyway, so they're they're yeah. sort of following and dialing it up to their own audience. Hi, we're the Goo Goo Dolls. We're fortunate that our daughters have what they need to grow and learn, but that isn't the case for nearly 13 million kids in the U.S. that struggle with hunger. Childhood hunger is a heartbreaking reality that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and provides it to families and children in need. You can help kids in need in your community by visiting feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. My guest is the presidential historian Craig Shirley, author of April 1945, The Hinge of History. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Let's look at your new book, April 1945. It's uh, out this month. It's been available for pre-sale. This is quite, quite an accomplishment. There's over 600 pages. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Tell us about it and the whole what's in the book to read. Oh, John, you know, everything is, is that at, at the top level, uh, Franklin Roosevelt dies right on the on the eve of winning World War II, which is Shakespearean in its in its irony. Uh, he, he dies within a month of uh, winning the war with uh, w- within a month of winning the war in Europe or within several months of winning the war with Japan. Uh, Adolf Hitler commits suicide uh, and brings an end to the uh, to the to the German state to the to the murderous Nazi German state. Uh, Mussolini is is dragged down by the mob and and horribly killed. That's just at the top. But also, Auschwitz is discovered. Dachau is discovered. Uh, Okinawa is raging. The battle for Okinawa is raging, and this book has, of course. We know about the the Holocaust, but you know the thing is, I didn't realize until I looked at a map, John, is that the death camps weren't just a half dozen or scattered around Europe. I looked at a map, and there were there were there were dozens of death camps all over Europe, all over Europe. The monstrous Germans kill not only uh, Jews, you know, over six million Jews, but they also kill homosexuals, gypsies, political prisoners. Uh, Polish workers, anybody who's religious figures, religious figures, sure. Religious figures. Yes. Anybody who stood in the way of master race was exterminated and in the most horrible uh, means necessary. Also, Uh, I don't there's not a good way to die. The the Germans devised a really bad, really bad ways to die. I mean, the horrors of it, you imagine it's hard to comprehend and put it in context when you yes. see what's going on in today's world with all our problems. Hopefully, we'd never reach that level again of depravity. Well, let's hope not. Of course, you know we've been we've been aborting babies in the United States for uh, years. So, and, yeah, 
you know, some people would say that that's, that's a form of Holocaust. I happen to be pro-life. And so I, I, I think that's a form of Holocaust too. But in context, Europe. we have had our, these terrible horrors. Um, yes. You know, when you look at it in that light, shocking light. Yes. Yes. Look, has a lot of fun things too. It wasn't just all bad. First of all, we were winning the war. We are on our way to winning the war. But, uh, but, but fun things too. Like for instance, the national speed limit to save gasoline, the national speed limit in America was set at 35 miles an hour. Oh. Uh, everything was rationed. Gasoline was rationed. Meat was rationed. Milk was rationed. In 1944, 25% of all vegetables grown in America were grown in victory gardens. I remember one time I asked my mother. That's amazing. Just repeat that statistic. Let it settle 25, in. 20, I know. Isn't that astonishing? It 25% really of all vegetables grown in America were grown in victory gardens. I once asked my so mother in, in, in cities and towns. This is in this is in tenements, in backyards, in the small family farms, and other means. Is that we were sending all of our all of our vegetables to our fighting men and women. We were sending them to Great Britain, and we were sending them to you know uh, everybody was fighting. The Russians, Canadians, everybody was fighting. We were we we were the breadbasket of the world. Um, I once asked my mother, uh, who God bless, who God thank God is still alive, and and, and alive and healthy and well. Uh, she was a little girl. She was in her teens uh, during World War II, and I once asked her about Victory Gardens, and I thought it was kind of a PR, you know, myth by the Roosevelt administration. She got indignant with me. She said, "I had a Victory Garden." Everybody I know had everybody I knew had a victory garden. So twenty five percent of all vegetables in nineteen forty four were grown in victory gardens. But you know, Americans made so many sacrifices. They had rubber drives, they had scrap metal drives, they had newspaper drives. Everything, nothing was thrown away. Everything was was was, was reused for the war effort. Nothing was squandered whatsoever. And of course, you know, wages were there were freezes on wages. Uh, there, Detroit truly was the arsenal of democracy. You know, John, after December 7th, FDR told Detroit, said, look, you're not making any more cars. And no new, no new cars were made for th four years in Detroit. He said, instead, you are now the, now the arsenal of democracy. And within three weeks of December 7th, uh, Ford uh, automobiles, uh, Fisher uh, tires and Goodyear rubber, are producing fabricated B-24 and B-25 bombers within three weeks of, you know, of being told, you're not building cars anymore, you're building arms. And, uh, you know, another company made uh, lots of things for the uh, kitchen, you know, like uh, uh, blenders and things like that. And all of a sudden they were told, nope, you're now making army helmets and uh, impellers for airplanes. So was, Operation uh, Warp Speed back then. Yes, Operation Warp Speed. That was uh, Calvinated. The company was Calvinated. And, you know, there was one company that wasn't, uh, wasn't uh, cooperating enough with, uh, with the FDR administration. So they, they literally reached in and they fired the president of the company. And they replaced it with somebody who was friendly to the New Deal, friendly to uh, uh, Roosevelt's policies. And everything, you know, it, it wasn't the official suspension of, uh, you know, habeas corpus and other things like that, but it, for all intents and purposes, it was. The, the, the Navy, I'll say one other thing, then I'll shut up. The Navy uh, sent out a memo uh, at the beginning of World War II to every radio station in America and said, look, you will not broadcast troop movements 
chip movements, soldiers, you will not use the war to promote commercial uh, enterprise such as, and here's the war news brought to you by Campbell Soup. They had strict, strict regulations on all on, on television. They didn't say so to, to newspapers. But newspapers basically abided by the, the FDR and, and abided by the you know, the uh, philosophy or the, ar- the argument that loose slip ship sink ships. They didn't print anything controversial. Everybody was used for the war effort. Let me just, one other thing, and I'll shut up. Uh, both my grandmothers were Rosie the Riveters. One was a machine gun inspector, and the other was a bomb inspector. Again, I never got a chance to ask her, what does a bomb inspector do? Uh, but, the, but the war used everybody for everything. My father was a Boy Scout at the time. He was a 12, 14 years old. And the Boy Scouts were used by the national government to distribute promotional posters to churches, restaurants, bars, grocery stores. And they were such, you know, uh, loose lip sync ships or uh, cautionary uh, posters about catching BD or about volunteering for a service or about sacrifice. But all hundreds of these gorgeous, beautiful posters. I have some of them now. I have some of them in my uh, uh, wing of my house uh, that were produced by the U.S. government, hundreds of them, and they used the Boy Scouts to uh, distribute them and uh, hang them up. Was America a United States of America back then? Were people all in this together? We're all in this together. This this is important for people to understand. We've always been divided as a country. You know, the Civil War was about our very divisions. The historians will tell you that 30% of Americans opposed uh, the American Revolution, George Washington, and in fact, 100,000 left after America won the revolution, uh, is that we were divided over, every election we're divided, of course, yeah. uh, it, we were divided over drinking, we're divided over uh, the Vietnam War, we're divided, the only two times we've been united as a country were beginning in the afternoon of December 7th, 1941, and we stayed united for four years, and the afternoon of September 11th, 2001, and we stayed united for only a couple months. Yeah, I remember that well. I uh, That was a shocking day in memory. It's such a tragedy we will always remember, September the yes. 11th. And I recall in our local hardware store, people lining up to buy American flags. saying to myself, how long will this last? But they ran out of supplies of American flags. That's here in America. I was living in America at that point. Yeah, and, and, and little lapel pins. Yeah. They ran out yeah. very quickly, and people wore them for a couple of weeks, and then they stopped wearing them. Didn't last very long. The Great Depression and the policies enacted then, did they sort of divide America? Because there was a lot of anti-business sentiment sure. that rose up during the Depression and the New sure. Deal and the Democratic, the rise of the Democratic machine, if you will. Yeah, sure. It was the rise of the Democratic machine, but even the Supreme Court struck down certain elements of the Supreme of the uh, New Deal. So even they were divided, you know, five to four votes by the Supreme Court. And then Congress voting against certain elements, so even even Democrats in Congress voting against certain elements of the uh, of the uh, New Deal. And of course, we're divided over even getting involved in the European war. We started the America First movement and they said, any, any Republican or any Democrat who, who supports going to war in Europe, we have no business there, uh, is that we will run a primary candidate against them in their congressional or Senate race. 
And, you know, we, after World War One, there was a saying going on in America that said, all we got was death, debt, and George M. Cohen. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And uh, so, by the 1930s, we were very isolationist. We passed all the neutrality acts that prohibited U.S. troops from leaving the Western Hemisphere and all sorts of, that was passed by a Democratic Congress and signed by a Democratic president. They only were abrogated after December 7th, 1941. You kind of draw parallels uh, between that period and even the reaction to the COVID pandemic with all the massive stimulus efforts to shore up industry and employment. And, and probably, again, that's a, John, that's a good argument. I hadn't thought of that before, but there was massive social spending in the 30s, just as a massive social spending going on right now. Why did you pick, uh, apart from the obvious, I guess, April 1945, incredible turning point, but anything that attracted you to that month to put it into this massive historical yes. tome? It goes back to my book, December 1941. Um, there have been many, many good books written about December 7th. The, the, the best book ever is uh, Gordon Prang's Dawn We Slept. That was, that's the best single book on Pearl Harbor. But I want to do a book on what happened with culture and with humanity and with, with the people in the month of December 1941, how it radically changed. Uh, we went from being isolationist to internationalist literally overnight. And there's so, so, I, so I wrote that book. It was a New York Times bestseller, modestly. I got good reviews. And uh, the reason I wrote it, John, was I remember as I always remembered as a boy, every Sunday after church, we went to uh, my grandmother's house for dinner, uh, either a big ham or a big turkey or big roast beef or something like this. And uh, I was sitting there, you know, a little, you know, old shirt tail kid listening to aunts and uncles and grandmothers and grandfathers and, and fathers and mothers. And invariably, the conversation turned to the war. As in, my grandfather would say, well, I bought that LaSalle before the war, but I didn't sell it till after the war. And how they mixed up oil butter with uh, with a, a dye to make it more palatable. And how they all sacrificed, how they, every one of them uh, tried to sacrifice or did sacrifice uh, for the war effort. You know, they all did, wrapped, uh, you know, my grandmothers uh, were Rosie the Riveters. They had aunts who, who wrapped bandages for the Red Cross. My grandfather... He tried to enlist three times, three times, and three times they said, Ellsworth, you're 41 years old. You've got four dependents. You're blind as a bat. We're not that desperate. <laughs> so you got turned away three times. Wow. God. So, but, so he became a civil defense block cap, and he would walk the block at dusk every night, making sure that people had the blackout drapes drawn and didn't have any lights showing through. Uh, and, of course, my uncle – my father's oldest brother made the ultimate sacrifice. He was shot down and killed flying uh, in his uh, TBF-1 Avenger in the Pacific, in, in Saigon, actually, in uh, World War II. And, and my uncle was in the uh, military also. So my father, they all made their own form of sacrifice. And so I grew up listening to all these conversations about all the things they did. And it always stuck with me. And I thought to myself, you know, I always thought to myself, I want to do a about that era yeah and so i and so i did but it was not about the military so much it was it was about the civilians wow so it's very yeah. personal to you yes yeah, very personal to me john very 
very personal to me. And so uh, April 1945 seemed to be the logical conclusion yeah. uh, that goes together with, with December 41, about the, the last months of the war, what was going on in the United States, what was going on in Europe, what was going on, you know, some terrible, terrible things. You know, the Japanese, for instance, marched a group of American sailors who were POWs, had them dig a trench, then poured gasoline on them and burned them. You know, it was a, you know, it was a good thing. When you, when you just imagine. Island of, island of friendly natives in the South Pacific who were thought to be uh, favorable to the Allies were, uh, the Japanese came in in their boats and they machine gunned them all down. They, they killed them all. Because just for suspecting them of being favorable to, uh, the, to the West, to the Allies, uh, every, every 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 it was just horrible. Or and of course, what we did to the Japanese and German Americans and Italian Americans that was off. You know, the internment camps that was terrible. Adolf Hitler conceded defeat in April 1945. No, he never conceded defeat. No, he didn't. Well, then then the information I got from this, I thought reliable source was inaccurate. So. He never yeah, conceded. No, no, he never conceded. Debate about he, committed, that, so? he, he, he committed suicide. The actual German uh, who conceded defeat was Admiral Dommitz, D- Dommitz uh, who became the de facto head of the uh, Third Reich uh, after Hitler committed suicide. And he saw, Dommitz, Admiral, saw, he was actually anti uh, Hitler and was actually, I got to study more about him. But he saw the war was hopeless. The Russians were coming from the east, marched on Berlin. Uh, the uh, English, Americans, and Canadians were coming from the west, uh, marching on Berlin. It was just, it was hopeless. Uh, and also, Clausewitz and uh, and Nero uh, decrees had been ordered by uh, Hitler. So they were actually destroying their own country while the, the Allies were destroying it too, in order to prevent it from falling into the Allies' hands. You mentioned abortion, and that's a great Holocaust. And compared to the Second World War, it's, it's, a, it's a, a startling comparison and reminder of brutality and man's inhumanity. But speaking more broadly, could the world ever have a world war again? I hope not. If it had another world war... And would would nobody wishes involve, for that. And I certainly don't. No, wish nobody for wishes it. for that. But it would probably involve nuclear weapons, and that means the weapons of mass destruction, and that means millions would die. So, uh, in other words, we it, w- it would never be a conventional war. Is your no, no? I don't think so. I don't think so. Peace is always the answer. Of course, talking and negotiation is always the answer. And that's why we need good, strong, moral leaders. Yes, we do. In, in all countries. Yes, we do. What do you make of what's going on in the Ukraine and Russia? Look, uh, is it, what's happening to the Ukrainian people uh, is possibly going to be a terrible thing uh, done by Putin. But it, it is not America's you know, role. We can send foodstuffs. We can send peacekeeping. We can send negotiators. We can host negotiation treaties or discussions between uh, Ukraine and uh, the Soviet Union. But we should not escalate it by sending military uh, personnel there. We should not. Dial it down. Dial down. The dial way. it down. Dial it down. Dial it back. Joe Biden is just trying to raise his own poll numbers, terrible as they are. Uh, but Americans in the world does not need a war over Ukraine. April 1945, The Hinge of History is the name of your new book. You can order it anywhere, obviously, but do you want to give any information out on your website? Sure. Or- yeah. Thank you, John. It's available in Costco. Or will be 
It's available in uh, uh, Amazon online. It's available in Barnes and Noble, bricks and mortar stores, and independent bookstores. I'm sure you'll be doing some book signings. Oh, yes. I'm doing, I'm launching the book at the Reagan Presidential Library on February 22nd. I'm also speaking at uh, the Little White House, uh, which is FDR's uh, retreat. I'm speaking there in April. And then in May, I'm speaking at the uh, Franklin Roosevelt uh, home in Hyde Park, uh, New York. I've also had invitations from uh, other presidential libraries, which I hope to uh, I hope to go to, and also the Smithsonian, which I hope to be able to speak there as well. Craig, Shirley, we're running out of time. I'd love to have you back. It's been fascinating, sure. been really interesting. Thank you for being on my show. Good luck oh, with sales pleasure. of this great book. Thank you, John, very, very much. You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699. 973-529-4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com. Burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.